0: The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Reading from Isaiah chapter 62 verses 8 through 12. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His mighty arm I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: I'll begin by adding my welcome uh, to that of Keith's. Uh, We are glad that you're here this morning. Whether you're a longtime member or a first-time visitor, we hope the Lord blesses your time with us. Before we pray and look at this passage, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you may feel uh, a bit of whiplash. Uh, We spent the summer in Deuteronomy, Uh, started our series in Deuteronomy, and we will go back. We finished Moses' first sermon in Deuteronomy, and then we switch to Luke, uh, and now we're going to spend October uh, in Isaiah. And that may be uh, something that some of y'all are familiar with. Uh, but every, every October for the next few years, we're going through this renewal series. And so we're going to pause wherever we are and go back to Isaiah. As, as many of you probably know, our church family's been praying for renewal Uh, not just in terms of our beautiful, uh, but aging and in need of repair building, but also in terms of our own hearts. We're praying and planning uh, for an upcoming birthday party uh, that's 20 years from now, Lord willing, and we'll celebrate the 150th anniversary of LNPC's founding way back in 1892. And we know our hearts well enough to know that uh, renewal that's needed is far more than just an old building. It's is for our own hearts. And thankfully, Isaiah lays out the path for ongoing renewal for us in the latter part of his prophecy. He, he gives great words of encouragement and hope to those who are in exile, those facing loss and threat while awaiting the, the coming of the kingdom. And we too, in some ways, are in exile, far from our true home, as we wait for the coming of the kingdom in all of its fullness. So, how is it that we can experience personal renewal? How is it that we can experience corporate renewal as a church family? And the answer is the path for us is the same as it was for God's people in Isaiah's day. It's a path that involves relinquishing our own agenda and repenting of our sin. It's a path that involves reflecting on and and rejoicing in all that God has done for us and who He reveals Himself to be in the Scriptures. It's a path that leads us to realigning our lives with God and His Word. And that's what we're going to look at uh, for the next three weeks out of these wonderful passages in Isaiah. So let me pray and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, we know our hearts. Uh, We know that our hearts need ongoing renewal. We love you. We thank you that you've changed our hearts, that you've brought us to faith. You've given us the gifts of faith and repentance. And we pray that you would be working in our hearts even this hour to grow us in grace. Lord, that we would do far more than just understand an ancient passage, but that we would be changed by your word and your spirit. That through the miracle of your grace, we might live lives that bring you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 62 is a passage where Isaiah is prophesying about the future, about a a time where the people of God will be living in exile and longing to go home. Longing to go back to Jerusalem, back to the temple that had been destroyed when they were carried off into exile. The ESV uh, study Bible says this. It's very helpful where it just kind of sets the context for where we are since we're jumping back in here the study Bible says Isaiah is addressing the returned exiles and subsequent generations, that's us, a subsequent generations of God's people with messages of challenge and hope to keep their faith and obedience steady until God fulfills all his promises. That's where we are. They needed to hear a message that was challenging and hopeful because their lives were a mess and their world was a mess. They're living in exile in a foreign land. And Isaiah's message, what we'll see is it's just as relevant to us 2,700 years after it was written than it was the day it was written. Our world, too, is a mess. I don't know about you, but... uh, Historically I like getting up and kind of looking at the at the news and looking at different websites and seeing what's going on in the world and there's not a lot of good news. There's ongoing war in Ukraine, there's Russia threatening to use nuclear weapons and then there's smaller wars all over the globe. There's threats of war from North Korea and China and Iran. There's unrest throughout the Middle East, but it's not just that the world's a mess globally. Like, just bring it back to the United States. We have ongoing political turmoil. Elections are coming up, and I don't know about y'all, but I feel like the election season never ended from the last round. Increasing political polarization. The financial markets are absolutely in turmoil. The morality, the the data, the studies on morality throughout the U.S. basically say it's in the tank. And even professing Christians, the stats of Christians are not that much different from non-Christians. But it's not just that there's a mess out there and there's a mess here in the United States. There's also messes right here in our hearts. Relational struggles abound in marriages and in parenting and at work and in play. I love the passage in Romans 7 that's so encouraging to me where Paul says, this is the Christian life. He says this in Romans 7, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't, I don't do, and what I hate, I do. He talks about the internal struggle with his own sin nature. Even after he's a Christian, he's still struggling. So the turmoil's not just all out there, it's in here also. What are the people of God to do? Well, several things before we even get in the text, several things that kind of set the groundwork for this text. First thing is we need to remember that our God is sovereign over all things over all His creation. It's so easy to forget that. We need to trust in His sovereignty, trust in His providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, what is God's providence? God's providence is a a one-sentence answer here. God's providence is His completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing every creature and every action. That's who the Scriptures reveal to us is our God, a God who is sovereign over all things, a God in whose providence He preserves and governs every creature in every, act, in every action. We're to view life. What are we to do? We're to view life out of that reality that God is sovereign on His throne, even when it seems like things around us are going haywire and things inside us are going haywire. But secondly, I think we're also to realize that if we're really believers in Jesus Christ, this is not our home. It's not our home. Our true citizenship does not lie here. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote about this uh, in, in Mere Christianity, I believe it was. He said this about that desire in our heart that just never seems to be fulfilled by the best the world has to offer. Lewis writes this If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a, is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must be careful on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake the blessings for something else, of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. And then listen to this. He says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. And I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I think he's spot on. And yet, even there, the question arises, this is not our true country. If he's right, if it's not our true country, then what will that true country be like? If our world today is full of strife and hardship and struggle and war, externally and internally, where is it that we're to find hope? Or can hope be found? Well, our hope is not just found in the sovereignty of God over everything that occurs in our world. It's not just found in the reality that this isn't our true home. It's also found in the promises that God makes to us. And that's what we're looking at this morning, these promises that God has made, and we see them in this passage. This passage is a gift from God to us in this respect. He's given us a certain and a glorious vision of the future to challenge us and to encourage us and give us hope in the present. Let's look at it together. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see the passage is printed and the outline is printed also. God gives his people a certain and glorious vision of the future through first, his reassuring oath to his people. Look at verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Let's just pause there for a minute. The Lord God himself is making an oath, a promise to his people. He's swearing an oath. And it's important we understand right at the beginning that God's oaths, God's promises are not like ours. Our promises are not always sure Things can get in the way of our keeping our promises. I remember when my children were little, I made them some promises that I was not able to keep. Simple promises even, like I'll take you to the pool on Saturday or I'll take you fishing on Saturday only to have it pour down raining, thunderstorms, lightning. There's no way you could go to the pool on Saturday. And sometimes one of my children would protest the injustice of it all and say, but dad, you promised And you told me never to break my promises, you're breaking your promise. They didn't understand that sometimes things happen that are totally out of our control. They make it impossible to keep our promises. They didn't understand that. Or maybe they were just trying to make me feel bad actually. But that is not so with the Lord. The scriptures tell us over and over again that the promises of our God are sure and certain. He never breaks them. He's never slow in keeping them. He's never thwarted in keeping them. So when Isaiah is using this Old Testament language, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm. It's not just repetition. He's sworn by his right hand. He's talking about his personal agency, his direct involvement, his mighty arm is his personal power. Isaiah is saying that together they point to the one who's strong enough for this task and fully committed to doing it. It will be done. This promise is sure and certain. But then look at the promise in verse eight and nine. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. What is this oath? What does it mean? Well, in ancient times it was common when your land was invaded, you lost all your crops. It was a time of great insecurity. Enemies would invade. they take your crops. they raid your vineyards. And there's nothing really you can do about it. But notice what he says there. The Lord says, I will never again give your grain. I will never again give your wine to your enemies. He's, he's talking, Isaiah's talking about the sovereignty of God here. He's revealing to us the sovereignty of God. The Lord used the nations to discipline his people. He's reassuring this people with an oath saying, there'll come a time where these things will never happen again. There'll come a time where I will not need to discipline my wayward people for they will no longer be able to be wayward. He speaks of praising the Lord and gathering in the courts of his sanctuary and that's not so much about returning to the temple in Jerusalem as it is about living life in the presence of God. Enjoying sacred fellowship with God. What he's really promising is this. He's saying, There's a day coming when the curse shall be no more. There's a day coming when we who are in Christ will live life in all of its fullness in the presence of God. Think think Revelation 21 here. In Revelation 21, John has this vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And he says, This I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will, listen to this covenantal language, just like Genesis 17, right? I'll be God to them and their descendants after them. Said he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. When we're struggling to understand what's going on in the world around us and inside us, all the things that are so troubling, God gives us this gift of a glorious and certain future where there's no longer any sin, where there's no longer any curse, no longer any effects of the fall. Instead, He says we'll be living in perfect peace and fellowship with each other and with Him. What a gift! God gives us this gift of his reassuring oath that that day is coming and we're to live light and live life in light of the knowledge that that day is coming. But secondly, also, he gives the gift of his welcoming call to all people. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up. Build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift a signal or a banner over the peoples. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Here in these verses, God is offering to the nations what he's freely given to his peoples, he's offering salvation. Not, not salvation through a rigorous application of the law to their lives so that somehow they can live in favor with God, but salvation through a Savior who perfectly kept the law of God for us Through a Savior who paid the penalty on the cross for our sin, through a Savior who freely gives us his righteousness through faith, he's offering that gift to the nations. And I love what he says, go through the gates, prepare the way, build up the highway, clear it of stone, lift up a banner over the peoples. But when I first read it, I was like, I'm not sure what that's about because I didn't understand the imagery. But Ray Ortland is so helpful here. Ray says this, Remember, this is a city that's been, this is a people that have been in exile. Jerusalem's in ruins, basically. He says, this is an image, this is imagery of a walled city, formerly desolate and forsaken, but now repopulated with redeemed people. And the gates of the city are wide open, and a newly resurfaced highway leads from the ends of the earth into the city, and the nations are invited to come. And God proclaims a coming salvation to the ends of the earth. What a picture, what an image that is. It's a call from God to his people to build up that highway, to clear the highway of all the rubble and the stones of the ruined city. To lift up a banner, a signal to the nations And what that means for you and for me, if we're part of Christ's church, if we're trusting in Him, what it means is He's calling us to remove all the non-biblical barriers to drawing near to the church, to entering the church. To let Christ's church, to let Lookout Mountain Prez be a banner to the nations, a billboard to the nations to come to Jesus and find rest for their weary and troubled souls. To be a welcoming and attractive place for those who don't yet know Jesus. And I love verse uh, 11. Three times he says, behold. And, you know, I don't think I've ever said behold in all my life. Do you use that word at your house? Behold, I am home. (laughs) It means more than just look. See, it means more than that. In the Scriptures, it means to look with great focus, with great attention, to fix your eyes upon this. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River and he saw Jesus coming towards him. Do you remember what he said? He said to the people, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, focus your attention on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's similar to what Isaiah is saying here. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed this message to the ends of the earth. Your salvation comes. His reward is with him meaning the people that he's redeemed are with him. Here's the the bottom line here. He's calling his people, he's calling us to prepare clear paths for people to meet the Savior. Let me say it again, to prepare clear paths for people to meet the Savior. I thought about that a lot this week. Is that the way that you and I live our lives? Seeking to prepare clear paths for people to meet the Savior, seeking to remove any unbiblical barriers or cultural barriers or political barriers that interfere with others coming to Christ that actually end up harming the gospel witness? Are we seeking to live lives winsomely as servants of the Lord Jesus and servants of others, living in rich community, even with those with whom we may not agree politically or in many other ways? Are we looking for opportunities to build bridges, to share the good news of what Jesus has done for us? Are we looking for those? Is that how we live our lives? Or are we just kind of not interested in that at all? Or are we putting up barriers, in effect making the kingdom not look good at all, not look like a welcoming spot at all, unless those people share our values and our beliefs before they even come in the door? Do we think about that when we make comments to each other in the community or at work? Do we think about that when we post on social media? I'm not on a lot of social media. I'm, I guess I'm on it. I'm, I think I'm hip because I'm on Facebook. <laughs> it doesn't work that way anymore, does it? 15 years ago, maybe. But it's amazing what people post on Facebook, what Christians will post, and you just go, God, do you realize you represent the church? God gives his people to encourage us, to give us hope, a certain and glorious vision of the future, future through this reassuring oath that there, a day, there is a day coming when the curse will be no more. Through this welcoming call to all people and to the people of God, prepare clear paths that others might come to know the Savior. And thirdly, he does this through his amazing declaration of the people's identity. Look at verse 12. And they shall be called the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. What a beautiful description. What a beautiful description of a people who once were alienated from God. We like the thought of being called the holy people, the redeemed, right? We, we like that and we forget who we were sometimes. I love how Paul addresses that in Colossians 1. Paul says this, once You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We tend to forget that. We're the holy ones. We're the ones set apart unto God, redeemed. We tend to forget it. But Paul's saying, once this is who you were, remember that. But now he's reconciled. This is Paul. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation that's amazing that's who we were and this is who we are now because of Christ the holy people of God it's important maybe to define what we mean by that what do we mean by the word holy because we tend to think of it in our day we tend to think of holiness as as moral purity right we're 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 pure in thought, word, and deed. That's what it means to be holy. And that's certainly part of what it means. But holiness, deeper down at its more fundamental sense, means simply this, to be set apart unto God. Set apart unto God, set apart for His purposes. So when God's declaring His people righteous in Christ, then He moves in us in response to His grace through the power of His Spirit. Spirit. He moves us to actually pursue a life that's set apart unto Him. And yes, it may result in increasing purity over time, but it's really about being set apart unto Him, more and more desiring to live lives that bring Him glory and honor. Desiring to live lives that conform to his word. Isaiah's looking forward to a day. He's pointing the people of God in exile to a day when they will have been sought out by the Lord, they will have had their hearts changed, they'll redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they're set apart unto God, and He's looking forward to the day where they're finally and fully perfected in holiness. He's saying, Be encouraged. This is where you're going. This is who you are. His amazing declaration of his people's identity is simply that we who were once at war with him have now, because of his grace alone, been sought out, redeemed, and set apart for him. As Sandra McCracken writes in a hymn that we'll sing in just a few minutes... She writes about the day he returns and what it will be like for those who are in Christ. And she writes about gathering at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And she writes these words, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. That's the promise God gives all of his people so that we won't be discouraged so that we won't be disheartened by the trials and troubles we may face globally or locally or even internally, by the fears and failures that we experience. He says, be encouraged, have hope. Have hope in the promises of God. I want to close just by reading, since we haven't been in Isaiah in a year, just by reading the first part of this chapter that we studied last fall. Isaiah 62 Uh, Verse 1 says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet until her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and kings your glory, and you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Let's pray together. Father, there is uh, much in our world that can be disturbing to our hearts. Much in our hearts that disturbs us. We thank you so much for the encouragement and the challenge of your word to, to help us through the struggles that we just have to endure in a fallen world. To help us to live with great hope. We thank you for your reassuring promise to us that a day is coming when all the effects of the fall will be gone. A day is coming when your son will return and finish the task of making all things new. When we pray for us in the meantime, Lord, as a church and as individuals that through the work of your spirit in us, we really will live lives that are winsome and welcoming to those around us who are not yet in relationship with you. Help us to live lives that indeed will prepare clear paths for people to come to this place, to this church, to this community, to our homes and meet the Savior. And help us to live, Father, with great anticipation of that day that our hearts will be fully restored. We ask all of this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus, alone. Amen.